Stories connect us. They build empathy and understanding across difference. Stories are the basic building blocks of community. If you are brave enough to share your story and have the empathy to listen. But when was the last time someone really listened to you or you listened to someone else? Each episode, we choose a theme and stories from our archives of thousands of stories collected using the Facing Projects model. Every story you hear was produced by two people who took the time to listen and share and collaborate on a monologue told from one of their lived experiences. People who listened instead of judged. What if we all sought to understand? This is The Facing Project. Hey everybody, I'm Kelsey. And I'm JR. And we're the founders of The Facing Project. Kelsey, I'm always amazed about how people learn about The Facing Project and what they think they are based on their interactions with us. Yeah, some people come to the event, it's Facing Cancer, and they think we're just The Facing Cancer Project, we're a Facing Poverty Project, and I honestly think my dad still doesn't even know what The Facing Project is at all, maybe. Some people just think we're the radio program. Yeah. But, you know, we've collected thousands of stories across the country. People participate as writers and storytellers and actors. And and we've always tried to guide communities to some type of action with each project. Yeah. And now we're really focusing in on this more than ever. In fact, we tweaked our mission statement to reflect this. Drum roll. Drum roll. Give me a drum roll. All right. Um, <laughs> I don't know. Yeah, there we go. <laughs> So here's the mission statement. Um, The Facing Project creates understanding and empathy through stories that inspire action. Yep. But what does that really mean? I mean, right? Like, I mean, to the average person on the street, like, stories that inspire action. Like, it sounds nice, right? But, I mean, what does that really mean? Well, you helped come up with it, JR. Come on. I know. I know that I did. But... So what we're trying to do is, with each story... We want to give a very tangible action that people can participate and interact with that topic and, and to learn more so that there's a there's a next step because we don't want any facing project or even one story to be the end. We want people to hear these stories and then we want them to do something. Awareness without action leads to guilt and we want people to be more aware and more active with these topics. Yeah, I mean, the the worst thing that I ever hear after someone attends a Facing Project event, or maybe they hear the story on this program, is that story broke my heart and it made me really sad. And I'm like, I'm sorry, that wasn't the point. Like, yes, we wanted to raise awareness and we do want to pull your heartstrings a little bit, but more than anything, we want you to say, but what can I do to be engaged? We want people to get involved, right? So today's theme is stories that inspire action. And we'll share two stories that did create tangible, ongoing action in their communities. And we'll explore other ways that past stories from the Facing Project have created change. The first story you're about to hear comes from a Facing Project in Atlanta, Georgia, where it was recorded at a live event. It has strong language, themes of sexual violence, and could trigger some listeners. Discretion is advised. Through the research that we conducted with the Facing Project, We discovered that over 60% of the boys and girls that are forced into sex trafficking are also survivors of sexual abuse. In search of peace, answers, protection, and that almighty powerful thing we know called love, they so often run directly into the arms of danger. This is Casey's story. 
pretty girl is what they call me. A badge of honor for most girls on the covers of magazines, but for me, it stings. Because what they don't know, can't know, don't want to know is that's what he used to call me when he'd sneak into my room at night. Shh, daddy's here, pretty girl. I'd quiver spontaneously in pain and delight. He won't play that game with me. Touching, sucking, muffled tears in secrecy. But he said he loved me. Even when it hurt, Daddy said he loved me. No, Mama used to say I was Daddy's little girl, but I was his woman too. Well, she didn't love him anymore, so what was I supposed to do? He said he loved me. So what was I supposed to do? I must have heard those words so many times in the boys' bathroom, backs of cars in the basement as they pulled a chain and Stevie Wonder sang, overjoyed, I am building a castle of love. <laughs> love, love. It didn't matter how many times they came inside of me, as long as they said those three words I longed to hear. I love you, girl. Until six STDs and four abortions and those three words made it painfully clear. Love was not to be cherished, but feared. Pain, shame. It was a weapon of mass destruction, and now I had my own, but you never saw me coming, because now that pretty little girl is all grown. On the stage is where I found my prey, and they'd line up day after day. Corporate, married, Mercedes-Benz classy. Oh, you can come inside my playhouse, but this milk ain't for free. Soaring, spinning, high so recklessly but they don't want to know me wife me or hear my dream so i just be what they want me to be but in vip you gotta pay me because the touching and sucking is no longer free 20 for the pain when you made me bleed a 50 for the shame of the reflection i see a hundred for the games we played at night in secrecy, but this time you've taken the very last piece of me. Fear had me in chains, but I still know my name. And ever since I let him back into my life, the game is now changed. 365 days ago, I had to bury that pain. Six feet under in a grave full of shame. Pain and fear no longer lives here. Now I live free of the pain and fear so that others never have to shed the 1,629,055 tears that I once shed. Because now that pretty little girl is dead. Today, a woman stands in her place. 
for every single sweet, innocent face that never heard the three words that I longed to hear from someone that cared without imposing fear. I love you. Wow, that's a that's a heavy story. And Jr., you were actually at the live event where you one day read this. What what did it feel like in that room? What was that like? There was complete silence. I mean, when you hear a story like that and the way Iwande delivered it, it's, I mean, what can you say after that, right? I mean, it's this moment of, oh my gosh, like, what did I just experience? I feel like I should do something about this. What do I do? And so many people came up to her after the event and they said, I'm so sorry that this happened to you. And and she had to say, oh, I'm just the vessel who delivered the story. This It didn't happen to me, but it opened a good conversation point around that. And that's why we chose to use the live audio from that event today, because we just can't recreate that moment. And we wanted our listeners to experience that. In fact, that event was aired through their local PBS station. And a woman who lived like 70 miles away, who had been trafficked uh, as a teenager, uh, but now was out of that situation, married with a family, wasn't sure how to respond. And she hopped in her car and drove to the station. And, and when things were wrapping up, she was there to say, I heard these stories and and I need to talk to someone. And as organizers of the project, or even us as the founders, you know, one of the founders, me standing there, like, I I didn't feel like I was the right person to help. But the beauty is that there were these storytellers who had shared their stories through this project. They stepped forward, right? And that was such a beautiful moment because they were able to say, your story is my story, and I understand the path you've been through. Let's talk through this, right? And and that's an experience that is breathtaking, and it's something that happens in the moment that, that can't ever be recreated. So it's really hard to explain the emotions that were felt in that entire experience. But I think that happens over and over again, just in different ra- ways through these different projects that, that we've seen happen across the country. I mean, no one could have predicted that it would have that kind of immediate impact. And I think that's one of the great things about the Facing Project that, you know, we're, we're not the experts in these issues, but we partner with people who are, and yeah. people who have had these lived experiences and then they can educate us and their communities uh, about this topic and kind of think about what that change could be and you know this project was run just by a couple of engaged like citizens yes um and it's kind of amazing the life that and the impact that the project made in the long run this is one of our first projects yeah. it was one of our pilot one of our pilots yeah and um, the stories were actually used uh in a kiosk at the Atlanta airport where flyers uh, could put on headphones and hear these stories performed and then be educated about how to identify sex trafficking at the airport. And, and I think the Atlanta airport's like like the num- one of the number one y- yeah. destinations for like, you know, human port- trafficking, yeah. sex trafficking in the world. 
And those stories in the airport, I mean, the great thing about that is people flying through there, like you said, could pick up headphones, listen to these stories, pick up information on about how to spot human sex trafficking while you're traveling, what to do and not do if you if you need to report it to authorities. And our understanding was that that installation was in the airport during the summer of 2014 or summer of 2015. But we've heard other people tell us, oh, actually, I've, I've seen that. And so it may still be there. We're not totally yeah, sure Just about last that. week, someone was like, oh, I know that. I was just there. I'm like, I don't know if it's still there or not, but yeah. it's great but, that it lives on. Yeah, and a great resource, and it's the right place where it needs to be. The other thing that this project has done to continue to live on is the organizers worked with area churches and synagogues who then continue to work with actors to share these stories throughout the communities and, and small snippets. And they've also done some work with the local police and the Atlanta community to help to change some policies around sex trafficking and human trafficking, especially when it comes to uh, sex workers. And also Oftentimes, sex workers are forced into um, the sex industry through trafficking, and that's not something we often think about. We may think about somebody and consider them a streetwalker or whatever we may want to call them, but oftentimes we don't understand that they may have been trafficked as a teenager and are forced into essentially sexual slavery. Uh, And our policies uh, and laws are so behind on that, and so one thing that they're trying to do through these stories help change some of that culture in Atlanta and hopefully elsewhere. You know, here we are in Muncie, Indiana, and, and it seems like, oh, that's a big city problem. But once I came in contact with these stories and and heard these stories, you, it kind of opened my eyes to like the how much it exists in our own uh, community as well. Like it, it's in the newspaper, but it's very easy just to not to not see that and not understand that's part of this larger problem. So once I became aware of this project, it helped me see it in my own community more and just how pervasive of an issue it is. Uh, According to the FBI, sex trafficking is the third largest illegal industry in the United States behind drugs and illegal arms. It reportedly generates a profit of $32 billion every year in the United States and globally $150 billion. Wow. And many of these stats come from the Polaris Project, which is an organization that fights sex trafficking. They've received more than 49,000 human trafficking reports in the United States over the last 10 years. Mm. Learn more at polarisproject.org, where they maintain a national human trafficking hotline at 1-888-373-7888 or by texting BEFREE to 233-733. The Story of a Mother An anonymous story as told to Autumn Snezrud from Facing Hunger in Manhattan, Kansas, a facing project organized by Kansas State University, performed by Chandra Ford. I woke up this morning with a feeling in my gut. I know today is going to be hard. I go into the kitchen to open up my fridge, knowing I won't find anything in there. The emptiness that looks back at me is almost too much. We have no food, no milk, just one lonely piece of chicken. I have nothing to give my son before he goes to school. Days like this, I don't know what to do. I have 18 cents in my bank account, 
and I don't get paid for three more days. I can go with little food until then, but my son does not deserve that. No child deserves that. I drop my son off at school and drive to the food pantry. As I check in and sit down, I have to fight the tears that have come to my eyes. I am so thankful for the help they give. They have always helped me when I needed it, but I have tried very hard to stay up on my own feet. I never thought it would be like this. I have worked hard to make a better life for my son. I went to school to earn a degree. I drove miles daily to get the education I knew I needed to provide for my child. I struggled while going to school, but knew that in the end, this would help me keep food on the table. No one prepared me to expect the unexpected. No one told me that one day my full-time job may be reduced to 26 hours a week. No one mentioned that the car brakes may go out one week and I will have no choice but to replace them. No one told me that one day I would have 18 cents to my name and a young growing child to provide for. I never knew that it would be this hard. I know that without the food I'm getting today, I would not be able to feed my son for the next week. I could eat ramen the rest of my life and not worry about this money issue, but I cannot create that life for my son. He is the most important thing in my life, and I will do anything to make sure he has a good one. This is why I'm sitting in this waiting room, still on the verge of tears. I am here today to get food just so I can make it by. I am here so tomorrow I can feed my son before I send him off to school. I sit here thankful yet still full of hope. One day I know that I will not need this help. Instead of coming to sit in the waiting room for food, I will be the one volunteering to give out food. I sit here today because I have hope that tomorrow I will be able to come here and help others. For right now, that is all I need. That is enough for me to wipe the tears from my eyes and sit confidently that life will not always be a series of struggles. One day, my son will feel satisfied after every meal he eats, and I will continue working until we get to that point. What I love so much about that story and the particular project that story came from is that the leader, Lori Niffen, became more engaged with us after this experience. She's now on our board of directors. And recently she shared with us that these stories from Kansas State actually motivated their institution to create a food pantry for students who are food insecure. Yeah, sometimes that change can take a couple years to accomplish. We weren't even aware of that until she told no. us. Yeah. So I, I visit a lot of college campuses, and I was uh, surprised the first time I saw a food pantry. But actually, food insecurity on college campuses is quite common. Actually, nationwide research shows 25% of community college students experience food insecurity. 
and 20% of students at four-year schools do as well. And according to data from the College and University Food Bank Alliance, over 640 colleges and universities around the country operate food pantries on campus. Learn more about their work and hunger on college campuses at cufba.org. Additionally, Feeding America cites that 42 million Americans are food insecure and 12 million kids go hungry every year. That's about one in six kids. Learn more at feedingamerica.org. So aside from some of the tangibles we've talked about today, there are other levels and types of impact. Connections, changes in behavior, and there's writers, storytellers, actors, and organizers who directly work to produce these stories. Yeah, I think a great example was Lori. Like, she was part of this project of creating this thing, and now she's much more engaged in it. Yeah, and then there are the audience members who are there and experience this thing in real time. Which I think is like the woman who showed up at the Facing Sex Trafficking Project after seeing it on TV to get help. That's another level that we can reach. Yeah, and then the community members or the community in, in full, right? So the people who were inspired yeah, by this and they said, hey, I want to do something. Let's do a food pantry. Let's put these stories in the Atlanta airport. So what impact can a story make? We've surveyed some of the individuals who participated in projects to see if any of these connections have actually changed their attitudes and or motivations. Yeah, and what we found is that 100% of respondents agree or strongly agree that after coming into contact with the Facing Project, they found it easier to see things from the points of views of those who shared their stories. And 75% will be less likely to judge those facing the topic in the future. Also, 80% of participants have indicated that they are likely to volunteer or donate to organizations working with individuals facing the topic or issue of that particular Facing Project. Creating empathy and understanding. In order to get more people engaged in this work, we're launching a new initiative, Stories That Inspire Action. Information about community-wide facing projects, becoming a writer or storyteller, and sponsorship opportunities is available at facingproject.com slash inspireaction. To listen to past episodes of this program, visit indianapublicradio.org slash thefacingproject. From there, you can subscribe to the podcast where you'll get episodes of The Facing Project delivered to your device each month. And to continue the conversation about this episode, find us on Facebook at The Facing Project. The Facing Project show is produced by Sean Ashcraft from Indiana Public Radio at Ball State University in Muncie, Indiana. We are your hosts, Kelsey Timmerman and J.R. Jamison. Until next time, we wish you the courage to share your own story and the empathy to listen to others. Next time on The Facing Project. I told my kids to put me in a canoe, get somebody with a bow and flaming arrow, send me out on the lake, a Viking funeral. A story from a man facing the end of his life reflects on the legacy he'll leave behind. And a story from an individual who lost the love of their life and had to start over in a new community. Join us as we talk about how the end is a new beginning. Thank you.